The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. It's time now to open God's Word together, so let me invite you to take a copy of the Scriptures and open with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you need a copy of the Scriptures, you can find one in the pew rack there in front of you. And uh, Matthew chapter 5 is on page 809 in the New Testament. But let's do open together. Uh, We have actually since... October, and then we took a break uh, during some time during Advent and for a few other different opportunities. But we have been in this series of uh, Matthew's Gospel that's known as the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus sits down and teaches his disciples the things that they need to know about living in his kingdom. And for a while now, we've been looking at these things called the Beatitudes, these statements at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus pronounces blessing and says that those who do these things are blessed. And we've been learning about exactly what that means. Of This morning, we come to verse 9 and the blessing about peacemaking. But I thought you'd be interested to know, and I saw this uh, bit of fact, that in 3,400 years of recorded history, only 8% of history that's been recorded has been without any kind of war whatsoever. In 3,400 some odd years, only 260 have been without any kind of conflict of war. It's interesting, I think, because most of us, whether we're talking about global conflicts, local conflicts, or personal conflicts, most of us want peace. Uh, We speak of it as a virtue. But actually, what we find, and we're confronted with this in the Beatitudes, is that although we all want it, very few of us are willing to make peace. We desire peace, but we are oftentimes unwilling to make peace. Jesus is going to call us here in this Beatitude this morning not to be a peacekeeper, but a peacemaker. And there is a very important distinction. So if you've got your Bible open there, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon his word. And we will hear it together. Father, we bow now in your presence, thankful that you've gathered us here. Thankful that we have a copy of the scriptures in a language that we can read and understand. And so we pray, Lord, that as we give ourselves to hearing what you would speak to us, we pray, Lord, that our ears are ready and able to hear and that our hearts are willing to receive what you would speak to us, that you would find good soil in our souls to spring up the fruit of your word that is planted deep within us. And so, Lord, come, give understanding to us, give application and give obedience, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. And now hear God's word from Matthew in chapter 5, and we'll read through the beginning through Verse 9, hear the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God 
abides forever. And so may he write its eternal truth on our hearts today. Uh, We'll be lingering here in Matthew 5, verse 9. So do keep your Bible open. And as we do that, we want to remember what exactly is it that Jesus is doing when he is speaking to us, the Beatitudes. Jesus is not giving us a list of things to do and things to check off so that we can feel that we are blessed by God. He is not giving us a to-do list of personal righteousness that we are seeking to accomplish in and of our own strength. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, and more specifically what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes, is he is saying, for all those who come into my kingdom, for all those who receive me through faith alone, this is what it looks like to live in the strength of the Holy Spirit and by grace in the kingdom in which I rule. You see, there is a kingdom of this world and there is a spiritual kingdom of Jesus Christ that has broken into this world and those two kingdoms are oftentimes at odds with each other. They have different ethics, they have different morals, they have different ways of life and those who are the citizens of the kingdom of Jesus oftentimes stick out amidst the kingdom of the world. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be a true citizen of my kingdom, if you want to know what it looks like to live in my kingdom with sincerity and faithfulness, It looks like this, and this, these are the people who are blessed by God. Not those who have earned it in and of themselves, but those who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, who have given themselves to faith in Jesus Christ in obedience to his kingdom and has said, I am not the Lord of my own life. Jesus is my Lord and I want to seek to follow him. And Jesus is saying, following me looks like this in these various ways. And we've been seeing them in the Beatitudes We saw that in big portion, the Beatitudes welcome you to empty yourself of your self-righteousness, to no longer trust in yourself, to rather see yourself as, in verse 3, poor in spirit, mourning your sins, being meek before God. Jesus has been showing us what we do not possess so that we can know what we are to seek from him, namely his righteousness. And those who have been filled with the righteousness of Jesus, those who have been received into his kingdom, are those who are also, we see in verse 7 and 8 and 9, these character traits follow their lives. Their lives have been transformed. There are those in verse 7 who are merciful. There are those in verse 8 who are pure in heart. And we come this morning to verse 9, that to be a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus is to be someone who is a, verse 9, a peacemaker. Now you may be interested to know that actually verse 9 is correlated to verse 5. If you flip back to verse 5 briefly, you'll see Jesus saying, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the meekness of the Christian faith is what then produces the desire, in verse 9, to be a maker of peace. A peacemaker. Now, we're going to look specifically about what that means. But in a world that is so filled with vitriol and hostility and conflict, and argument, and hatred in so many ways, we're used to a term, uh, warmongering, right? Warmongering, people who are always out for conflict. Jesus is inviting you to be a peacemonger, someone who is on the mission of peace. 
But first we want to understand why. Why is peace such an essential reality for the true disciple of Jesus Christ, the person who lives in his kingdom? And the reason why peace is such an important thing that Jesus is touching on here is because of the gospel in which we believe. What is the gospel? What is the good news of the Christian faith? Paul calls the gospel in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, the gospel of peace. The Christian faith is a message of peace. Not most fundamentally peace on earth, but first of all, peace with God. The Christian gospel, the Christian message, the faith that we proclaim is a message that apart from Jesus Christ... And without faith in Jesus Christ, we are not at peace with God. The Bible describes the unbeliever as someone who is at enmity with God, literally at war with him because we are born in sin by our nature. Apart from Jesus, we are in this predicament that we are not okay in and of ourselves, that something is wrong, that there is a disunity and a dysfunction that exists between us as created and the creator, that there is a rift in that relationship and the fundamental rift is that of sin. But Jesus is, Isaiah calls him, the Prince of Peace who brings peace where there is no peace. Jesus is the one who brings us peace with God. I think it's oftentimes the fact that people perceive in their lives that they do not have peace. And they think that the solution is in something or some way or some technique or some method when in reality, fundamentally in their souls, apart from Jesus, we are not at peace with God and that is our most important peace. Jesus comes into the world as the Prince of Peace. He is our, the Bible calls him, mediator. A mediator. Now, I remember when I was in junior high school and we had this program called Student Mediator which was a terrible idea, I think, actually. Uh, they, they chose particular students that they thought were, were gifted at the ability to see both sides of an argument. And rather than, than staff and administration and counselors stepping in to mediate, they would literally send two students into a room with a third student and let the student mediator mediate the conflict. Now, in and of itself, that might seem like it could be a good thing, but I was one of those student mediators, and let me tell you, we are too biased to mediate our own conflicts oftentimes. The real mediator that we need, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. The mediator is the one who can bring together two sides together for reconciliation, Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, and as God, he is able to live sinlessly with full righteousness, and as man, he is able to obey in all the areas that we are required to obey in such a way that Jesus pleases God on our behalf. He makes peace with God for us, as Romans 5.1 says, that we are justified by faith, and therefore we have peace with God. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 5 that where God and man used to be estranged from each other, through Jesus we are reconciled. The gospel ends the hostility that exists between God and man, between God and his people. 
The gospel is the gospel of peace. And so therefore, Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of peacemaking. Now that is the important background for what Jesus is saying here in verse 9. Blessed, he says, are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You may be interested to know that this is the only use of this term in the entire New Testament. Peacemaker. It's the only time this is used. There is another derivative form of this in Colossians chapter 1 where Paul writes about Jesus making peace. But the terminology of being a peacemaker is totally unique here to Matthew's gospel. Uh, It's a form of two different words of, of course, peace and maker. And the peace that is referred to here is a peace that reflects an Old Testament concept. You know, normally when we think of peace, we might just think of the absence of conflict. But a biblical notion of peace is actually related to this Hebrew word of shalom, of wholeness and healing, where there is well-being and goodness, not just the absence of conflict, but the unity of truth. I think oftentimes when we think of peace, we have half a definition. We think things are at peace so long as there is no conflict. But it is very possible to have an absence of conflict and be totally estranged at the same time. A conflict can be, as we taught at the Presbyterian meeting a week ago, a frozen conflict. There is no present butting of heads. So we say there is no apparent conflict, but there is no relationship that exists. And so peace is not just the absence of conflict. It is the shalom of wholeness and well-being that exists between two people. That's the peace that Jesus is talking about. And to be a peacemaker is to be someone who is in active pursuit of that reality. Now, here's where we are confronted by this, and this is very, very clear and apparent. And friends, test your heart on this point. If you and I breeze through the Beatitudes, if we don't stop to linger on each one of them, it's very easy for us to read and check and move on from every single one of them, and this one especially. If we make the mistake in verse 9 of thinking that Jesus is calling for us to be passive peacemakers. You know what I mean? People who just mind their own business. You see a conflict, not engaging it. As long as I'm not involved, I'm keeping the peace. If you think Jesus is talking about the simple avoidance of conflict, you've mistaken the words of our Lord Jesus. He is not talking about passive peacekeeping. A peacemaker does not avoid conflict. Jesus is actually saying a peacemaker engages conflict. Not to stir it up and inflame it, but to resolve it. It's too easy to let ourselves off the hook in verse 9 by saying, I'm not involved. And I see that happening, and I don't want anything to do with it, so I'll just keep quiet. That's not what Jesus is saying. So what what does Jesus mean about peacemaking? And because the gospel is true, because we believe the gospel, because we believe that through faith in Christ we are at peace with God, we are therefore called to pursue peace in our lives, to be active peacemakers, and I think we could say in at least three areas. In the world in the church, and in our lives. 
I believe that Jesus is calling every single one of us this morning to be an active peacemaker in the world and in the church and in our lives. So what does that look like? Jesus is calling us to be a peacemaker and saying that those who are peacemakers are blessed, that those who pursue peace, I think it's appropriate to say, in the world. What do we mean by pursuing peace in the world? I think it's oftentimes a joke. We speak of, you know, world peace as if it's this uh, endangered species that's never a reality. Will, Will nations come together in and of themselves? Of course not. The kind of peace that we are to call, we're called to seek and pursue in the world is not geopolitical world peace, but rather the knowledge of Jesus Christ through the gospel going into the world through our representation of Christ. We are called to pursue peace in the world as we take the name of Jesus to places where it is not known. That's what it means to be a peacemaker in the world, I think. To be a peacemaker uh, in the sphere of your influence, where you work, among your social group, who you hang out with, the people who share your hobbies. To be a peacemaker by bringing the peace of the gospel into the world. You are a peacemaker in the world when you bear the name of Jesus into the lives of other people who are at desperate unrest within themselves, who don't have peace. I don't think Jesus is calling every single one of us here to be a global ambassador in some foreign nation to be a peacemaker for geopolitical peace, but rather to take the peace of the gospel into a world that is desperately not at peace. And especially in people's lives when they find themselves very much not at peace with God. Maybe you have a story of what that looks like as somebody else brought the peace of the gospel to you. You and I are called as Christian believers to take the peace of the gospel into the world, meaning into regions of influence and spheres of influence in other people's lives. We are called to be peacemakers in the world, first of all. But secondly, and I think perhaps maybe more tangibly, we are called to be peacemakers in the church. In the church. Among the body of Christ. Isn't it a shame that so oftentimes people say that Christian people are the most unchristlike they know. Now, I would argue that point a bit, but oftentimes people have negative associations with the church because they see in the church struggles for pride and position and power that make the church end up looking far too much like the world. And the church is not to be a place in which people are struggling with one another for their position and power and their own pursuits and their own little kingdoms. Here in the church, we devalue our own kingdoms for the surpassing value of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are not here to build up our own names or to make other people think well of us. We are here to make well of the name of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 speaks of the church and the people of God as being bound together with the bond of peace. In the church of Christ, we are to be united and we are to maintain peace in the church. And if you want one of the most tangible examples of that, you have it right in front of you. Because isn't it interesting that later on, actually we'll see in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to address this very point. That if we are a person 
that loves to receive grace and forgiveness from God, but not extend it to other people, especially other people in the church, we have sorely misunderstood the gospel. If you peek ahead to Matthew 5, verse 24, you will find Jesus instructing worshipers to lay down their sacrifice and go be reconciled and then come back. So I want to just simply ask this question. Very practically in the church, do you hold a grudge against another member of this church? Are you at odds in any way with a fellow brother or sister in Christ in this congregation? I hope not. But if perhaps you are, Jesus is saying that in my kingdom, the characteristic of the character of my kingdom is those who pursue and seek peace actively, not passively sitting back waiting for them to approach me because they're the one that wronged me. Maybe you're the one that was wronged. Maybe you're the one that has been sinned against. Jesus actually, we'll find later on in Matthew 5, puts the impetus on you, even as the offended person, to go and be reconciled. It's far too easy to sit back and say, well, I'm fine with them, but they're not fine with me, and I'm waiting on them to come to me. Jesus invites us, calls us, commands us to be reconciled to one another in the church. And there are times when we have said at the communion table that if you are in such discord with a fellow believer in Christ, it actually might be better for you to not eat and drink if you insist on letting this rift continue. Go and be reconciled and then come together to celebrate the reconciling grace of Jesus. We are called to be peacemakers in the world, peacemakers in the church, and peacemakers in our lives. Now, of course, in our lives means in the church, but it also means in your life beyond the scope of influence of this church. Are you a person that is not at peace with a friend? I feel that burden. Are you a person who is not at peace with your own family? Jesus is calling on us as his true and sincere disciples to be those who actively pursue peace, even in deep-rooted and long-standing rifts. It's too easy, isn't it, to say, well, I tried, and it's their fault, passively sitting back waiting for them to approach us, when the Bible actually teaches in Romans 12, verse 18, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Now, there is a sense in which you may expend all of your efforts to pursue peace in a rifted relationship. That may be the case. But if in searching your heart and asking the Lord to say, have I really extended all efforts or have I just extended the efforts that are easy or comfortable to pursue peace? Jesus calls on us to be active peacemakers, not those who passively sit and watch division happen in the world, in the church, and in our lives. And this matters because what we do with Jesus' words actually reflects whether or not we sincerely believe the gospel in the first place. Because whatever offense that exists in your life, 
whatever offense that there exists between people or groups of people or whatever the case might be, friends, there is no greater offense than the offense of our sins against a holy God. And God in his grace has condescended in his son to extend the peace of his grace to all who would receive it. And if we insist that we cannot obey Jesus' command in verse 9, we are saying that the offense against me is more severe than the offense against the holy God and creator of all things. And if we have said that, we have just usurped heaven's throne and declared that we are the measure of all things. It's not an option for the sincere Christian believer. Jesus is calling you to be at peace. And if you are one of those citizens of Christ's kingdom who is sincerely pursuing peace, or maybe perhaps under the conviction of the Spirit here in verse 9, you feel this weight of saying, I feel the Lord shining that light in that dark corner that I don't like to see and I don't like to go, and you feel that weight, you have two choices. You can respond and say, Lord, turn it away, I don't want to see it, or you can say, there it is. There it is, and you come under the conviction and to obey Jesus and say, Lord, I will, as far as it depends on me, live at peace. And if that's true, Jesus says in verse 9 again, you are blessed. You are blessed by God, and you will be called, the second half of the Beatitude is, the sons of God. Now, don't trip over the um, gender there. To be a son of God is to be considered adopted into God's family by grace. It refers to both men and women, of course. But this is a very interesting phrase, isn't it? The sons of God. Why do you think Jesus says a son of God rather than a child of God? There's actually a very interesting reason. Because elsewhere in the Bible, it describes us as the children of God, right? We are adopted into God's family. We are his children by grace. We are in his family. But here, Jesus specifically says, son of God. When we live into the reality of what Jesus is inviting us to, calling us to in verse 9, when we seek to pursue peace actively in our lives, we are called a son. Why? Because a child of God connotates the the familial connection. There's a biological connection. It's a position. I am God's child. But in the first century, to be called a son is to say, not only do I recognize the position of the relationship, but that I have also matured to take on the character of my father. I am not just positionally his son or daughter, I am also taking on in my life the character of my father. And God is a God of peace in and through the gospel. And you and I are called the true sons of God when we take on God's own peace-making character in the gospel of Jesus Christ and reflect that in our own lives. You know, it was said a couple of months ago, Somebody said, I feel like Jesus takes me to the woodshed in the Beatitudes. Now, what your associations with the woodshed might be different things, right? But isn't it a grace of God to discipline us so that we might grow in grace and holiness and Christ-likeness? 
if when you feel the conviction of the Spirit, don't turn from it. Obey it and say, yes, Lord, you have made peace in my life with God. Help me to be a peacemaker in my life as well and as a result, a true citizen of your kingdom. We need God's grace to do that. And we all are called to do that. Let us pray. Our great God, we hear your word and Lord, we confess that often in our hearts, we want to disobey you. We want to deny what you teach us and we want to believe that our way is the better way. And so Lord, here we simply confess and repent that we are those who too often have considered ourselves peacemakers in a passive sense. Lord, you call us to step into conflict, not to sit idly by, but to restore and bring wholeness and peace so that we might more fully reflect the character of you. And so, Lord, I pray for every single one of us this morning that you would help us, that you would help us to agree with you in our hearts, that we might also reflect your ways in our lives. And so, Lord, help us. We call upon your name for that help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.